I got afraid of the foundation. Thought, oh, and then the, the guy showed me the lot he wanted to put my house on. I go, are you kidding me? You want to put it on that one? They staked it out, and I looked. From the left front of the house to the right rear, it dropped 23 feet between them. It's like, oh, my. I mean, they, they, they start digging into the mountain for the foundation. And the first two uh, uh, probing jackhammers that they secured uh, were busted into the mountain, beating a rock out. And then they got this atomic one that could have taken Rushmore down with a couple of strikes. And I, I remember I walked by, and the guy yelled out the window, this machine don't care, which was his way of saying, this is not going to be a problem. We're fine now. They put uh, 155 yards of concrete in the poured cement walls in the basement. And before they poured the walls, they set up the forms for the footings. And because of the slope of the lot, all the weight of the house was displaced on the back of the house. And so I got concerned about, you know, is that footing going to be okay? So I hired this structural engineer, most expensive letter I've ever had written, you know. And so he wrote the letter. And I gave the letter to the contractor, who was, who's, it wasn't one of our happy exchanges in that moment. But uh, uh, I never heard of a spherical pylon. And um, what, what they said I needed was these round circles every five feet all the way across the back of the footings, throw rebar down there, and then fill it full of concrete, and it would be ten fingers that would hold those footings. And what I learned was if you put the right foundation in, you can hang a house off the side of a mountain. It's amazing what a good foundation actually does. It will stand firm if you put it on the right foundation. Now, coming into April, in preparation for this Children's Ministry Sunday, there's a rash of articles, and I'm always pinging, anticipating where I'm going next, and I wouldn't do anything I can to try to arouse your interest in bringing your attention to the Word of God. Three headline stories in eight days. April 4th, New Yorker Magazine. Lead article, The Mystifying Rise of Child Suicide. April the 11th, The Atlantic Magazine, Why American Teens Are So Sad. April 12th, The Apple News Story, Children as Young as Eight Should Be Screened for Anxiety and Depression. Now those three together came and, uh, of course, it affirms what I was reaching for this morning but have you ever been involved in something and you had a plan? I have. I know this firsthand. That's why I can tell the story with passion. You know, I've had a plan that it was going to work out. But about three quarters of the way into my plan, I just had to say, hey, this ain't working. I better start over and get a new plan because it's not working out. There are some in our culture who in their honest moments will look at our children and say, this ain't working. Something's going on.
if our children are going to steward our future, what we want more than anything else is thriving children. And therefore, there's never been a day when parenting skills and parenting strategies mattered any more than today. How are we thinking about raising children? All parents make decisions, and then our decisions make us. So how's it going? How should we think about rearing children? And so I pose this question that I want to run after this morning. Why would any parent want their children to grow up in church? Now, I want to go two different directions this morning by looking at that. We're going to be looking at the closing paragraph in Jesus' message, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. I want to go two different directions. First, I want to give Jesus parental counsel. If Jesus were here and we say, I interview Jesus, Jesus, what do you have to say to parents? I think there's two facets of... Uh, rearing that he would want to uh, give us in counsel. And so we'll look first, what does Jesus take on rearing our children? Secondly, what does a Jesus foundation bring to the life of a child? Why would we want to work at that with partners like Calvary Baptist Church who were intentionally reaching for that? So that's our plan of attack. Let me first read it to you this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Matthew 7. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Four verses this morning. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell in great was its fall, hear the word of the Lord. Now Jesus uses three illustrations to close the Sermon on the Mount. We are looking at the final one, and it's about two guys who built two houses on two separate foundations. And he's using the story to call the people to build their lives upon everything he has said to do. Obey the words of Jesus, that's what it means to build your house on the rock. So first, what does Jesus Christ take on rearing well-grounded kids? Now that phrase is uh, in currently being used. It has some currency. They'll look at a child and say, oh, she is a well-grounded child. Or they'll look at a man and they'll ask, a young man editorially, they'll ask, oh, isn't he a well-grounded chap? Well, what are they saying? They're speaking to the underpinnings of a person's life, the ground upon which they are building. It's interesting. In Luke's version of the close of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, Mark, Luke, another gospel, Luke 6.48, it describes the wise man as one who, and here's the verb used, 
uh, the one who dug deep. Well, if our kids are well-grounded, upon what are they grounded? There's two facets to Jesus' counsel to us on living. Facet number one is this. Not all ways of life are equal and result in the same outcomes. Two ways of life are played out in these verses. Way of life number one, the person hears these words of mine and does them. A hearer and a doer. The other life is hears these words of mine and does not do them. So it's two ways of life being played out. Now, by, by the way, what is true, you can live however you want to live. But all of us, after we've lived, however we've wanted to live, making whatever decisions we've wanted to make, we have to live with the consequence of the decisions that we have made. One of the inextricable ways that God created life is embedded in the way life works that we must teach our children is the law of sowing and reaping. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, of the flesh he'll reap corruption. If he sows to the spirit, of the spirit he'll reap eternal life. There is embedded in the rhythms of life. It's how life works. You can't beat or fight against to change the law of sowing and reaping. One of the great wise things to learn growing up is that our decisions have consequences. Now, the spirit of our age works against that. Let it go. Let it go. Be yourself, however you define yourself to be. Now, formerly a Philosopher would call that approach to life, and here's the fancy $6 term, expressive individualism. We'll take one Wednesday night this summer in our package of seven great Wednesday nights together. We'll be looking at this fundamental spirit of our age uh, in a book, a book review entitled, I Am Not My Own, because it's contrary to how we are to view ourselves in the scripture, but it's certainly the spirit of our age. It's Elsa's song and Frozen, of course, which we thought was a kid's movie, and really it's a teaching a philosophy of life. Please notice how exhausted everyone is trying to be someone that they are not, but want to represent themselves to be. Now, there's two different outcomes, two different ways of life, two different outcomes. Verse 25, result did not fall. Verse 27, different result, and it fell. And then an editorial comment on how it turned out. And great was the fall of it. So one of the things that Jesus would want to insist upon us understanding is that not all ways of life are equal and result in the same outcomes. I want you to know that our mission as a children's ministry is to teach the way of Christ to our children, invite them to receive him and begin a relationship with them. By the way, we had the delight this morning of being next to a man who placed his faith in Jesus Christ and got started with him. Today, he began to 
set his life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It was a thrill. And we hope to have the opportunity to teach him the ways of Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Christ's ways are different than the ways of the world. We must learn them. And when we obey them, our house is founded upon the rock. Now, um, the foundation upon which we build our lives determines the course of our lives. That's the second thing Jesus would say. Now, um, maybe it was different for you, but my pituitary clan, first of all, it slept well into my high school years uh, when I wondered if it was ever going to wake up. You know, I'm five feet, six inches tall as a freshman. Although the uh, podiatrist part of my pituitary gland was really working well because, you know, my feet were size 11 in the ninth grade, and I was five feet, you know, five or something, six. So um, I had these big feet. And um, my freshman English teacher, who was a brilliant guy, came walking into class one day, and he goes, Eric, that's a great, you have a great understanding. And he was a brilliant guy, and everybody knew him for being, and I thought, wow, he's, I must have impressed him already early on. So I inquired, well, Mr. Dunson, what, what are you talking about? He said, Eric, your feet were so big, I saw your shoes come in well before your body came in. Look at you. And, and we were, he's a wonderful guy. He was just being playful with me. Uh, but I'd never heard that before. He, he said, you have a good understanding, which was a nice way of saying, your feet are too big, or, you're too, too big on your body, man. You'll grow into them someday. Be, be, be of good cheer. Um, what kind of a understanding are we giving our children? Jesus is arguing that his way as an understanding for life sets up a child for a great life with a firm foundation. I love that. Now, didn't Mount Zedong say, give me a child until they're four and then I'll have them? What kind of an understanding are we giving our children as they grow up? What kind of a foundation are we laying? The whole superstructure of life is built on the foundation. What's it made out of? What understandings are we giving our children? Please notice, uh, one of the things I love about Jesus is his realism. He doesn't say, come, build your life on the rock, and then just look out your window at all that bad weather that falls on everybody else that doesn't build their house on the rock. He doesn't say that. What happens to the home built on the rock? The rain comes down, the floods came up. By the way, you're looking around at a group of people at Calvary, and we just experience real life in a broken world like everything else things that make us cry, things that disappoint us, things that hurt us deeply, things that we have to bring before the Lord, burdens that crush our spirits. Just real life in a broken world holding on to Jesus. That's what goes on at Calvary. We're not some ivory tower place that doesn't experience real life. Jesus said, hey, it's gonna, the rains are going to come down, the floods are coming up. If you're in the middle of a flood, just stay on the rock, you'll be okay. You'll weather this. Your house will stand firm. But then the house on the sand, rain comes down, floods came up. But again, we've already talked about two different outcomes. Two different outcomes. Everybody has issues. Any life that suffers demise is an epic tragedy. There's something about Jesus' words. And notice, these are the last words in the Sermon on the Mount. And great was the fall of it. We're dismissed. That was the last thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Noting the sadness, the lament, 
the tragedy of a broken life. It's terrible. Any life demise is tragic. Have you been in any miserable situations where an epic crash had occurred? I was briefed this week on a suicide of a great young man, a popular young man, a great athlete. Of course, he just went along with the flow and isn't, you know, if you're at the center of the social attention, if you're just center of the athletic attention, don't you, I mean, isn't the party line, isn't the way of the world that, uh, you know, you, you push the edges, you get out there on the edge, well... Yeah, drank some, yeah, used some chemicals, partied, enjoyed it, it was all fun, indulged himself with girls, of course, and got into adulthood with epic emptiness, took his life, and the family was left to stand around grieving the loss of a life that was built on everything our culture says to live upon, and it had that great false sense to it. Baseball player, and I can relate to this, all I ever wanted to be was a good athlete. I broke myself as a child, working hard to get there. So I relate to this story. Pac-12, baseball player, best in his high school, best in his area, great pitcher, made it. His dream was to pitch for one of those iconic schools with a great program. He made it. But when he got there, it wasn't nothing like what he anticipated. He poured all of his life into that and got to the that and said, this is a nothing burger. And I couldn't feel more Agony to have worked so hard to get here and experience that. So he put on his uniform. After hours, walked out to the pitcher's mound and took his life. And they found him there. If you're next to persons in children's hospitals, you'll hear of stories. You'll serve families. You'll serve kids. Um, everybody says, hey, it's inevitable. Don't be a Puritan prude. What do you mean save yourself to marriage? The carnage that sexually transmitted diseases wreak upon people is real and significant, even though unspoken, because if you say it, you know, hey, the Puritans died in the 1700s, Mounts. I mean, the surgeries done at these places as a result of experiences and esoteric practices. Oh, and like sexually transmitted diseases are a problem for children. <laughs> but wait, I thought the party line was, you know, Hugh Hefner was our hero as a culture. I thought that was your best life now. Oh, really? Where does it lead us? Where is all this taking us? Let it go? Maybe some things we ought not let it go. Like the notion that there are no consequences 
There's no such thing as sowing and reaping. Maybe we ought to keep that close to our heart and stand on the rock and benefit over time from the wisdom of a life well lived. That's what Jesus would tell us as parents. Well, Eric, then, what does the foundation of knowing Jesus Christ give to a child? What does it give to a child? Is it important or is it not? Well, if Jesus, in this simple story, lays it all out, what possible benefit is it to introduce a child to the way of Jesus? Why would I want my child to found her life on the rock? Why would I want my little boy to found his life on the rock? There are three benefits to the foundation of knowing Jesus Christ. Number one, it provides our children the truth about God and our created world. I can still see the silhouette. I remember it was him as left-handed. Maybe he was right-handed. Carl Sagan, now dead into eternity, he met his maker even though he didn't believe in a maker. The physicist from Cornell used to have a PBS show called The Cosmos that he uh, narrated, and he would start out every episode, the universe is all that there is and all that there ever will be. Carl Sagan, uh, S. There's another guy with an S last name, uh, Francis Schaeffer, a Presbyterian missionary to Europe uh, in the 60s and the 70s, who wrote a book, I love its title, uh, The God Who Is There. And then he wrote another book, uh, He Is There and He Is Not Silent. And he has a phrase that I wish I would have coined. I, I love it. It's fantastic. He argues, there is someone at home in the universe. One of the benefits of founding our children on everything Jesus said to do is that we live life conscious that someone is at home in the universe. In 81, and just recently engaged to Andy, I went to Dallas for my first year at seminary, going to be away from her, and rolled into Dallas. Wow, was I homesick, and I was missing Andy, and I thought, this is all. I know one couple in Dallas, and I did not feel at home in that place, and went through the lines, and they were working really hard to welcome everybody, but it wasn't working for me, whatever sauce they were using, you know, and so I get to this room, and they're all single billeted room, and I walk in the room, and I shut the door, and thought, oh, man, sat down. I thought, I got to go call them. I only know one person that's at home in Dallas. So I went and called them. I said, hey, I just got here. And they said, hey, Eric, welcome to BD. Big D, see ya. And they hung up the phone. It's like, oh, man, I was wanting a little bit more out of that phone call than just what happened. The world didn't feel right. It seemed empty and vacuous and that I was alone in the world slugging it out by myself there getting started. Andy taught school while we were in Dallas, world's greatest teacher. She, uh, the kids loved her. Little first grade boy just went home and incessantly talked about her and talked about her and talked about her. And so the family decided to ask us to be with their children and house it while they were gone. Now, he happened to be the general manager of a professional sports team in Dallas. Now, we were living in about a 650-square-foot apartment, pasting quarters together, making life work at that time. And so 
we are invited to this home to live for a week while they're going to be gone. We roll up, you know, like we're, we're just our jaws drop. This is a palatial mansion. It's unbelievable. Now, every time theretofore that we'd ever been around anything like that, precious few times that they were, we would feel so awkward. It's like, we don't belong here. What are we doing? We don't even know how to act. This was different because the owner of the whole place who had created all that space invited us into his world and said, everything that's here is for you while you watch our kids. And we enjoyed the daylights out of that week. <laughs> and there was something about that week that we will never forget. But we felt the freedom to enjoy what was there because the owner of everything that was there had given us full reign. I want you to know when you are a child and you grow up being taught that there is someone at home in this world who made you and made you to relate to him and he couldn't love you more. In fact, the story gets better. He didn't even spare his only begotten unique son but offered him up and he will with him freely give you all things. That changes how you live in this old broken world. Come they as they do, the rain's coming down and the flood's coming up because they come into this our Father's world. Oh, wait, Eric. You telling me you're going to own this is your Father's world with all the evil and all the carnage and all the rotten stuff that goes on? You're saying that's going to help you? <laughs> what are you going to tell your child about that? Well, now, wait a minute. I push back. Are you arguing that it's easier for you to talk about evil when the universe had no beginning, it had no end, there is no God, then what's your explanation for evil and what's your explanation for death? Those answers don't get easier by dismissing God. They get infinitely harder and life becomes more absurd and less meaningful and more tragic by a thousand. So be careful how we prosecute that particular argument because we know that God's big story says in the beginning everything was very good. And we with our sin brought the curse that brought death. But he didn't abandon us. He sent his son so it's creation, fall, redemption. Jesus Christ came. And he came to restore everything that is. We're headed back to the consummation and the restoration of all things. It wasn't like this in the beginning. It's not going to be like this in the end. And God sent Jesus to give us hope. You tell a little child that and let them stand up on that rock. That story lives and will give you terra firma to stand upon as you face the tragic things that happen in this old broken world. Now, secondly, it shapes our children's understanding of themselves and how life works. The big questions, who am I? Why do I exist? Does my life have purpose? 
You teach a child this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You get to Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We are a special creation of God. On top of everything that he created, the only ones bearing his image, created in God's image. Did you notice and listen to the truth with created in his image with immutable gender, gifted to me by my creator. Yes, I made a little boy grown up to a man now. Our little girls are made little girls by God's design at birth. And our worth and dignity comes from being made in the image of God. And what we owe to each other, our neighbor, stems from their being made in the image of God. And we owe them such honor because, as C.S. Lewis said, we've never looked at a mere mortal. We've looked and seen a, a fellow human who was bearing the distinguishing marks of the image of God. In a sense, we feel comfortable in our own skin because God gave us this skin and made us who we are. We aren't an animal destined to live like an animal or have life habits running throttled by our baser instincts. No, there's a reason why at the Cincinnati Zoo there is no exhibit for humans. By the way, London, the London Zoo did that once. The special crowning creation of God, the special crowning creation of God is humanity, unique, glorious, all have worth. Is that what we're teaching our little girls? Or are little girls swallowed up by a sexually charged culture where they're objectified as having only value in sexual areas? Or are we founding them on the rock? On the image of God, on the glory of their Gender. By the way, I believe a lot of this gender dysphoria relates to a sexualized culture and the carnage that evil has taken on women sexually. But that waits for another message. I love this. 1999. Now, life doesn't last very long, as you know. The kids stay in our house this long while they grow up. So if you're in the midst of that, so it mounts, it feels anything like this. You know how many diapers I changed this week? You know, don't give me that flick. I went to my baby's, baby's one-year birthday party yesterday, 1999. This is what she brought home from Sunday school. She's eight years old. All about me, spring 99. I broke that on her. Abby, that's her portrait. She's holding two tulips up, she told me. I said, what were, were you holding? She said, two tulips, Dad. All right, next page. My favorite outfit, overalls. That was before her, uh, you know, her, her, her standards were raised a little bit. She was into overalls. My least favorite outfit, now I gave her my spelling uh, gift, jeans, G-E-N-S. My favorite food, steak and pizza. At least she was half right. My least favorite food, broccoli and spinach. By the way, who likes spinach? Nobody likes spinach. <laughs> Next page. My favorite colors, purple and pink. My least favorite colors, black and white. 
My favorite subject in school, reading. My least favorite subject in school, health. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> what I'm good at, math and reading. What I'm not good at, drawing. What I like most about myself. And she had several answers that she erased. Eyes. She said it on that one. What I like least about myself, I don't know. She was still working on humility at this point. She couldn't think of anything. <laughs> Things I like about God. He died on the cross. She was beginning to grasp the gospel and understand what Jesus did for her. Things I don't understand about God. Why people die. An eight-year-old girl experiencing life and trying to figure it out. I was struck by that answer. I laughed at the others. That one probed my heart. If you think eight-year-olds are not trying to figure out how life works and what's going on, you don't understand the glory of an eight-year-old's mind. They're trying to figure it out. By the way, what is the answer? And are we giving them the strong foundation, Jesus' answer, that's going to help them with life? I love that. If you're old enough, that's the only Art Link letter thing I have this morning on this Children's Sunday. Raise a child in Christian upbringing. You infuse him or her with an understanding of the way life works. The serpent told Eve, you will not surely die. Genesis 3, 4. That's the oldest lie in the book, and it's the one broadestly believed even to today. There's no consequence for sin. Let it go. Do whatever you want. And we've been dying since the garden, having bought that lie. Oh, to found a child's life on something else. By the way, ask Johnny Depp this week if it matters how you live. Finally, it infuses our children with sustained hope. Jesus' followers are children of hope. The resurrection of Jesus is a reversal of all fortune, a reversal of fortune of epic proportion. Think of that old gospel hymn, I'm now possessed by a hope that is steadfast and sure since Jesus came into my heart. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything about how we experience life. Followers of Jesus develop a posture for waiting for the Lord in hope. The resurrection has given us an excuse for hope. Who was counting on Jesus to resurrect? Nobody. But after he resurrected, his followers are always counting on hope. To break out and it's an indomitable force inside as we wait on the Lord and he delivers on his promise there's a built-in default for hope I've been with a little boy who had his leg cut off with bone cancer and I watched him walk forward with hope I've been with children whose dad had lost their job they were wondering about their family but had hope. Children with leukemia pressed in the middle of treatment. Been with children standing next to them at their mother's grave. Been with the young with brain tumors. With their mother terribly depressed. A great athlete struck down with a tough injury that was real disappointing. How do you go forward? Children of the resurrection take the next step with hope and the next step with hope because they're counting on what the Apostle Paul described as the power of the resurrection to move them forward.
And they never count God out. As D.A. Carson has said, this ain't nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. If God raised Christ from the dead to bring us hope, whatever this is, I'm okay. When children or adults lose hope, whatever they're going through, they don't go to good places. But all to rear a child with a heart brimming with hope. That's what happens when we teach them the gospel. It infuses their heart with effervescent hope that keeps going indomitably. Remember, the Apostle Paul said, if we hope in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But rather than be pitied, we have that strong and certain hope. Growing up as a child, God awakened in my heart two things. Number one, a knowledge of my sin and that I was estranged from God having offended him with my sin. Oh, I thought annoying the teachers that would make my friends at school think I was daring and send my teachers just off the edge in passion and giving me discipline and sending me to the office and telling those tawdry stories that was making my friends laugh and aggrandizing myself, my boldness. Oh, wow, Mounts is really something. The Lord awakened when I was a child the knowledge that that wasn't little tomfoolery as a boy and just what boys do. I was sinning against a God who was perfect. And I stood under the just judgment of God. But then there's a second thing the Lord awakened in my heart. That was a knowledge that he loved me so much that he sent his only unique son to die on the cross for me, to rescue me from every indulgent thing that I would bring to him that would ruin my life. And that in one afternoon on Good Friday, God took care of my sin. And then when he was raised from the dead, he delivered on what he could promise and demonstrated that eternal life was what he could bring. And he invited me to himself. And when he opened my heart, that was the best news I'd ever heard of. And when I walked through that door by faith, it brought me to a foundation that I have stood on for these years. And I want you to know the foundation is a lot better than my ability to stand there. But he's a great savior, and all I bring him is a great sinner. What a generous heart. You think it matters that we rear our children in church? I think it matters a great deal, and we love being your partner. God, give us mercy to those ends to raise up kids standing on the rock. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for already what you've done in hearts. Thank you for speaking to fathers right now, some of whom are inattentive to the pulse of their children and what's actually going on that they need to be more attentive to. Lord, you're speaking to mothers and affirming them and remind them that you're hearing their prayers for godly development in the lives of their children. Lord, 
bless our families. Help us raise up a ministry that builds a strong new generation of Christ followers. We stand up on the rock. Lord, our days, we need a firm foundation. The storm seems to be gathering that is significant. Help us find our strength in a great Savior. Oh, Lord, we love you. Help us think well and give you our hearts and bring our conscience out before you as we close in this contemplative way. Amen.